Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. Hey everyone, uh, Craig Shop here, back on the Ohioan podcast. Podcast, and today we are with George Thomas from the Akron Beacon Journal, sports journalist, film critic. George, how are you doing today? I'm looking forward. Well, I'm on vacation, so I'm not looking forward to anything but being on vacation. Well, we definitely appreciate you joining us on your time off, and. Uh, even though you are off, you are still kind of working a little bit with some reviews. Uh, you've seen a couple of new releases that are scheduled to come out. Uh, the first one is the Boss Baby Family Business. Now, this is a uh, sequel to the Boss Baby movie that came out a few years ago. You can see it in theaters on July 2nd or in on the streaming app on Peacock. So that's kind of a... a, a I didn't really expect that kind of an interesting twist. Peacock decided to do a same date release there with uh, the boss baby uh, family business. So George, I don't know if you liked the first one. I did not like the first one, but what are your thoughts here on the boss baby family business? And in the interest of being completely honest, I didn't see the first one. Okay. But this is set up. So you, you, you didn't have to. And after watching it, I'm happy that I didn't have to watch the first one. <laughs> See, this, this is what happens when a, a movie makes $600 million globally. Yeah. I mean, it did, you know, perspective-wise, let's go back 30 years. $175 million domestic has you in, in blockbuster range, right? Right. These days, even what the original came out, the Boss Baby came out four years ago. It did $175 million domestic. Right. It hadn't done that extra $380 million globally. We wouldn't be looking at a sequel. But here we are. Um, and, and that's what happens with a lot of movies today. This lost me a half hour in, maybe a little less than a half hour in. Primarily because this is a film you take a hit on for your kids when they're young enough to enjoy it. I would argue that most most preteens and teens are likely to get bored by that. Um, this time out, the original Boss Baby is back. He's back with his brother who he had this adventure with in the first film. Turns out his brother's young daughter, toddler, is the new boss baby. Okay. And she's sent to save her older sister from going to this elite school where it's it's possible it's not on the up and up. Okay. Yep. And also, you know, you think that 
think of that title, The Boss Baby. What do you think a boss baby grows up to be as an adult? A I'm going to guess a boss. Yeah, a boss. He's a workaholic. So okay. that, the original boss baby, who's voiced by Alec, Alec Baldwin, is a workaholic. He's grown apart from who used to be his best friend, his older brother, and they're distant, so they're coming together to help save their daughter and niece, respectively. And it's all kind of convoluted. And <laughs> it's it's the best way to look at it is you had to wait 45 minutes into the movie for the first genuine laugh. Mm. 45 minutes and it didn't, it didn't come from one of the major characters um, there's a, a, a couple of great father daughter bonding moments that if you're a parent you can appreciate other than that I this is one yeah it's good for kids and kids mm. need their own movie their own movies so they're not sneaking in our stuff. Our parents, <laughs> our parents are tempted to throw anything at them. So yeah, on that level, you know, I get it. I'm a parent. I understand that. But the best animated films for me, and I don't know how you feel about this, work on two different levels. You know what I mean? Yes. It's yeah. it, there are subtle, subtle things that adults can only pick up on. Disney has been great at that through the years, which is why their animated films tend to be so successful. They work on two levels. Right, and right. They, they can talk to the entire entire audience. This doesn't do that. I and mean, the best film thing about the film is Jeff Goldblum. And that's only <laughs> because, you know, if you're getting Jeff Goldblum and any kind of movie, he's going to give you this sublime, intelligent, and subtly hilarious performance. This is no different. It's it's very, very Jeff Goldblumy. So, <laughs> well, that's you know that's, that's good to hear. You know, I, I was going to mention. You know, you mentioned Jeff Goldblum. You know, the the voice cast. I mean, really second to none as far as the voice cast goes. I, I did like. I did enjoy Alec Baldwin's voice cast of Theodore Templeton in the first one. Uh, James Marsden's the brother. Uh, Amy Sedaris is in this film. She's always great. Eva Longoria, Jimmy Kimmel, Lisa Kudrow, of course, the aforementioned Jeff Goldblum. So, it, you know, you hate to see such talented people wasted on something that just you kind of know is not going to it's not going to be a hit for everybody and maybe just the little, little kids. And unfortunately, that's the big difference. I, I completely agree with you. That's really the big difference between Pixar and Disney when they're at their best versus what, you know, Universal does. Even though I enjoy the Despicable Me movies, a lot of times they are very much little kid-centric. Um, but, uh, you know, that's... No, I disagree on Despicable Me. Okay. They're very, very much on both levels. Well, that's, that's true. That is true, yes. I mean, there's, you know, the, the adult elements, whether it's the over-the-top action or the fact that he's adopting. And I see you have... Uh, the Despicable Me uh, glass right there. I see that you have a minion there. All right. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big <laughs> look. I'm a big fan. Look, hey, that's great. I, I'm glad. I love the Despicable Me movies. I'm a big fan. Here you go. I know ah, the tic tac. Yeah. 
unopened. I don't collector's item right there. there. Yeah, Best Buy July, Best Buy July 2016. I okay. don't. I'll be cracking these open ever. You'll have to pass those down to generations upon generations and let them become worth like five million dollars in like thirty or forty years when no one has Tic Tacs or something. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's you know, you can have a screwball comedy, you can have a little kids movie, but I think when you're when you're, you're right, when you're at your best, you're you're really catering to both audiences where. Things aren't too childish, and things aren't too over the top of a kid's head for them to really appreciate or understand it or like it. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, what was your final grade here for the Boss Baby family business? I thought I was generous with a C, so, you know. <laughs> well, uh, aside from hearing the review here on the Ohio, and you can also read uh, George's review in the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, definitely recommend you go out and seek his reviews. Always fun to read. Um, so we we trans transition from a theatrical and streaming release to a strictly streaming release with the Tomorrow War. This is a one of Amazon Prime's big big tent poles. Earlier this year, they had the Michael B. Jordan Without Remorse movie, uh, which kind of sputtered a little bit in most people's eyes. Now we have the Tomorrow War, their big summer blockbuster. They want to try to get into the streaming war. Of course, Amazon just has the, you know, just purchased the MGM library. So this is a, a really big step for them. You know, you, you've got the talented cast, Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons. I mean, what do you think about the Tomorrow War? Um, you know what? It's not going to go down in, in sci-fi cinematic history as the best time travel film ever. But, you know, Paramount originally had this film. They sold it to Amazon Prime, Amazon for like $200 million. Right. So I, I have to imagine at one point it was envisioned as a summer release. So it's a perfect summer release. Yeah. Um, Chris Pratt is likable. I enjoyed the movie more because it was trying to say something. You know what I mean? Right. Chris Pratt yeah. is a. It, it, the story is kind of weird because descendants from the future come back to the past to get their ancestors to help fight a war in the future. Because in the future, at the point they start traveling back in time, the human race is down to approximately a half million people. They're being exterminated by this grotesque race of, you know, they're, they're killers. I mean, okay. without okay. hesitation. And now they come, they come back looking for, I won't even say recruits, a draft is instituted, a global draft to send people to the future. Chris Pratt's character, um, a high school science teacher, is a recruit. He's required to go a, serve for a week in present day time in the future. But, you know, time is relative. Right. right. A week here is could be months in hell there. He gets there, makes an impression, becomes a leader, ends up, ends up bonding with a scientist working on a way to destroy these creatures via a biological weapon. Um, you know, 
it'd be a different story if that's all the movie was. But the movie examines when it's when it's right to give somebody a second chance. You know, Pratt's character is estranged from his father, who's played by J.K. Simmons, and an initial impression of his father. I can understand why they're estranged. <laughs> He's he he's definitely an alpha male to the extreme, and you know his 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 son is a geek, for lack of a better term. Um, you know that biological weapon, the scientist he works with that to help develop it, decide the best way to implement it is in the past, in present day. Um, which is going to require some digging, figuring out when this race of beings came to be, timing everything. It, in that regard, it's interesting. But I liked the humanistic aspects better because he, Pratt's character is required to to basically give his father a second chance to look at his father in a different way because of what happened in the future, and if I'm being vague, it's because I'm trying not to give shit away. Right, right. So well, we appreciate the, the non-spoilers. Although when I hear you describe this film, and I can't help but but think because I had just I just I just saw the film a couple of months ago when it debuted on HBO and HBO Max. It sounds a lot like Tenet, even though it was almost impossible to understand everything going on in that movie. And Tenet was a interesting hodgepodge of, of ideas and over the top grandiose action. It was, a, I, I liked that movie, but it sounds like tomorrow war takes a little bit from that, maybe a little bit from uh, edge of tomorrow with Tom Cruise, the, the sort of the, you know, a sprinkle here and there of everything. Um, do you, did you kind of think of Tenet when you saw this film? Now this is this is a ten piece jigsaw puzzle as opposed to ten. It's a hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. It, re it really right. And you didn't even get all hundred thousand pieces. You only got like nine hundred pieces, I think, in that film. But that's by design from Christopher Nolan, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I didn't expect the level of depth here from the Tomorrow War. But based on how you were describing it, it certainly sounded like that. I didn't want to, you know, oversimplify, you know, how you were kind of describing it. But it sounded like how Tenet was sort of a, a future versus present almost battle, if you will. In that regard, yeah. But, but see, it, it was interesting to me because of those human elements. Now, mind you, I don't. I, I really like the, 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 the concept of, of, of time travel. I love time travel stories. I mean, look, if there's a Star Trek time travel story, guess what? I'm in. Right. Unless they're really rancid. But <laughs> almost, I, I, I can think of very few bad time travel movies or, or tra time travel movies I dislike. And this, I'll, it's not great, but it's not bad. It, it's, it's entertainment. It's escapist entertainment with a, with a nice message. And you know what? I like the fact that it avoids the cliches that everyone would expect to become. I really do. And and let's just say people who who bother to, to take a shot at it, they'll they'll like what they see overall, I think. Well it's good to see Chris Pratt too. You know, obviously people might know him from the Guardians of the Galaxy, the MCU. 
here he gets a chance to kind of stretch out, even though he's still in the leading man action hero role, he gets to stretch his legs and do a different project for a change, which probably has to be nice for him to, to get out of the MCU for a change and, and do something while having the big, big paycheck and big budget behind it too. I have to wonder what the what the how big the paycheck was and whether it pays like the MCU. But hey, <laughs> well, probably not. But my 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 assumption is when you have a two hundred million dollar sale for a film for film rights, even though you're not getting the film distribution to the theaters, you're probably still going to have to pay somewhat full freight for a guy like Chris Pratt, whatever he's bumped his pay grade up to. I mean, I don't. He's not like Denzel Washington, Tom Cruise, twenty million dollars a picture. But he's he's got to be he's got to be in that ten million dollar range, I would think, or maybe twelve and a half or fifteen million, even for something that's going straight to Amazon Prime, because they're gonna hope that this guy, much like their upcoming Lord of the Rings series, is gonna you know draw some interest for people to watch their programming, and they wouldn't invest two hundred million dollars into it if they didn't think that was possible. But but see, for me, the operative question is. Does Amazon need the viewers? <laughs> I no, mean, no, they don't. They don't need the eyeballs. But you know, they're also spending a lot of money on this. They spend a lot, a ton of money on Lord of the Rings TV series. So you don't want it to flop. You don't want the streaming numbers to flop, even though most of the people that have Amazon Prime don't even ever watch any of the content. They just have it for the shipping and all that stuff. But you, you got to think that they have an idea in mind. Whether whether they they don't care about the money lost or whatever, they have an idea of what they'd like to see for viewership and maybe some new subscription rates. Well, they, I think Amazon is just going for world, world dominance anywhere they can. <laughs> I think that's what that's about. I do but, too. But I'm I'm probably one of the few people when they when when they started Amazon Prime, I I got it for Amazon Prime Video. Right. It's like we're we're giving you streaming free. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That's well, they have cool. an underrated library and it's growing. So, you know, and if they're if they're of the mindset that they want to compete against Netflix and how much Netflix spends on original content, you know, Amazon has all the money in the world too. So they, you know, if they want to, they can do what they, you know, the MGM purchase was huge, I think, for them. And I can I can see them purchasing other little place, you know, other little things here and there to try to expand that library. But see, but see, that's the key word there is library. That's why that purchase was so huge. It right. gave them a library, which Netflix doesn't really have. And 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 I think ultimately, and you know, I could be going out there on a limb when I say this. If Netflix goes the way of Blockbuster, which would be ironic as heck, <laughs> yes. if they go the way of Blockbuster, it'll be because they don't have a library of their own. Mm. A substantial, substantial library of their own. So, right. Um, well, I mean, they've had, they've had bits and pieces of libraries. I mean, they've had Seinfeld, they've had Friends, they've had other things, but you know, they've decided that maybe their original content was worth more because then they can say, "Hey, you can only get this here. You can never. We're never going to lose the streaming rights. We're never going to have to get into a bidding war with, you know, Warner Media or Amazon or Paramount or you know." Peacock for streaming of The Office or, you know, if it's their own stuff, they don't have to worry about it. They're never going to lose House of Cards or Orange is the New Black. So it makes sense for them, I think, to to try to reinvest into their stuff. Although I've made the argument before with you that it's for them, it's qua it's quantity over quality in a lot of cases. So I think getting libraries would probably be the best option for them right now. But, 
which brings me to my question. When was the last quote unquote buzzworthy television related show they they've had? Well, now, you I mean, can argue Jupiter's legacy, but they canceled it. Right. Uh, well, you've got Bridgerton was very popular. Uh, the Queen's Gambit, you know, even though that was last fall. So yeah, I mean, it's it's been several months, but you know, they're gonna build off of shows maybe like the like the Queen's Gambit and maybe you know Bridgerton and 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 maybe really be a serious player if they if they really wanted to invest into the best projects. I mean, you know, there's no reason why they can't have certain shows like Mayor of East Town or something like that where someone has a, a great, you know, script and they say, yeah, this is what we want. We're going to invest in it. And, you know, it's attention to the detail a lot of times for HBO. They, they put a lot of attention to detail, like shooting in, in, you know, Pennsylvania and getting accents right from actors and things like that. And I think, you know, you, you, I think the Queen's Game, it's probably going to get quite a few Emmy nominations. So we've had some buzzworthy shows. They, I, I don't know what their streaming numbers are because they don't have to release that stuff. So, you know, who knows? I, 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 I really think, I really believe that they're going to lean more on, on theatrical releases eventually as a revenue stream. Right. Down the line uh, to help allay some of the costs there. I guess we'll find out. But, you know, again, library, that, that's, yeah. that's yeah. the issue. And, and give Amazon credit for going out and basically stealing one. So, <laughs> well, they paid a lot for it. <laughs> You know, they had to bring a big piggy bank, although they had the biggest piggy bank of them all, so they don't really care. But, you know, they had to open up the piggy bank a little bit on that MGM purchase. Well, they're going to need to. They had to because here's one guy who won't be watching that Lord of the Rings series. Right. I mean, you know, I, I, th I almost I think that the Lord of the Rings series, you know, I always wondered, like, how that got away from other streamers. Netflix could have been in on that. HBO Max could have been in on that. You know, I think Amazon's probably the perfect fit because a lot of people that have Amazon Prime are millennials, young kids that probably read the books, like the other movie, you know, the six other movies that are out there. And I think they're going to transition into being the audience that they, I don't think they're going to get a lot of new subscribers to Amazon Prime just because there's a Lord of the Rings TV series. I think they're hoping that just the people that have Amazon Prime that maybe don't watch Prime because maybe there's nothing on there for them, quote unquote. This is kind of that show for them, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I I did all I did every junket for the Lord of the Rings films. And I'll be honest with you, I never got it. I yeah. it did not trip my trigger. Yeah, I mean, way too long, a little bit. Beautiful world building and everything. You know, Peter Jackson did a fine job with that. But yeah, not Peter Jackson's best work in my opinion. And uh, I don't. I, I I honestly did not see the Hobbit movies because I had seen the Lord of the Rings movies and I felt like every one of them being it seemed like four hours long. I just uh, I didn't need to get into the world of the Hobbit, and I never saw the Hobbit movies. Well. Do the words money grab mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
And that's what this TV series is going to be. I mean, it's almost like destined to fail because they have all this money invested thinking that this is going to be their challenger to like, you know, whatever. This is the fantasy epic that everybody's been waiting for, you know, but I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know that they can meet expectations at this point with all the money that they've thrown into it. And, you know, I'm sure it'll be gorgeous looking and everything like that. Costuming and action, I'm sure will be fine. Visual effects, but I don't know. I just kind of wonder if it's going to all kind of come together and do a, you know, satisfying conclusion. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but if they had had MGM when this when Lord of the Lord of the Rings series was announced, there would be no Lord of the Rings series. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, they wouldn't necessarily need it. But um, well. It's uh, interesting to talk about streaming. That's what we do here. But uh, now we're going to talk about the old school, going to the movie theater. Uh, George, obviously, you prefer that. I prefer the movie theater when possible. Movie theaters are opening up. The, the pandemic is sort of getting into the rear view. Uh, and now we get that classic annual shuffling of the decks from, from certain uh, films. In this case, it seems to be more of the Warner Brothers uh, deck being shuffled here. Um, the big tentpole fall release that they have is Dune, uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve's newest film, a sort of a reimagining, I guess, of the, the initial film, Dune. You know, I'm excited for this. This is probably the one movie that I earmarked last year that it, had it come out late in the, in the Christmas time, which it was supposed to, I might have considered a theatrical viewing even in the midst of a, of a really bad pandemic. But um, I'm definitely excited about this theatrical release. Now, initially, early October, get it, get it in that early fall window. They've moved it back, uh, not wanting to go up against the uh, 25th James Bond movie, uh, No Time to Die. So they've moved back June to uh, October 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. So it will have a little bit of an in-between between the James Bond movie and then the Eternals movie, the new Marvel film coming out in November. What do you think about the shuffling of the decks? Anything stand out to you from what we've seen here in the shuffling? Yeah, I, with all due respect, that that getting away from Bond is garbage. I, I really believe that. Not not to insult you, but if that's the the what they said in reports, it's like those are two different audiences. They are. They are but two. I think, I think there's a nervousness about maybe is there enough box office to go around for two films? Because we haven't seen yet a double weekend where we had huge, you know, this movie did well and that movie did well. We've had all or nothing, one or one or one and then the rest. Like, you know, Fast 9 or F9, you know, did 70 million and then nothing else did above 10 or 15 million. So I wonder if they're a little nervous that they might be fighting for audience at the box office in October with, you know, no time to die. Um, I think the second second shoe on Dune drops eventually, where they're saying, "No, we're not going to release this on HBO Max." Not, not I agree. I, that that I think that's what that move is all about. It gives them more time to see how things are going to play out with the pandemic, because we have this other variant sweeping through the country. I don't know if you saw today's Ohio numbers, but there was an increase of approximately 250 cases over yesterday. Right. And I think they're just waiting to see how things play in the fall. And later towards the summer, I think you're going to see, well, now Dune is going to be theatrical. 
And I think that's what that move is all about. It's buying yeah. time. I could, could be wrong. See, could, could you see that movie? You know, obviously, I think it's a it's a got big potential at the box office, but I also think it's kind of got a niche audience because a lot of people are like, "What do?" Some people know it. I know it, but I don't really know a bunch about Dune. I don't really remember the the original film all that much. I don't really remember the book all that much. A lot of people, there are some people do. It's, it seems like it's more like a cult following that may be a little bit bigger than your normal cult that will go see this. I don't really know if it's got that big blockbuster feel to me like uh, No Time to Die has, which is probably going to make hundreds of millions of dollars domestically and you know internationally. See, you, you, you're just going to make me date myself, aren't you? <laughs> I saw Dune in the theaters in high school. Um, one of the biggest disappointments of the time. Um, I checked it out because I'm a sci-fi nerd. Um, right. The books were huge when I was in high school, junior high, high school. The movie was a decided flop, but Dennis Villeneuve wasn't directing that original. I don't know if he was even born back then, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it was, I was born that year that it came out, so yeah. I mean, but, you know, it was directed by David Lynch. I mean, David Lynch is a intriguing filmmaker in most cases. Now, sometimes he can be hit and miss, but when he hits, he really hits, like a Mulholland Drive, for instance, or Twin Peaks. I mean, those are cult films. Right. They're, I, and mind you, I love Mulholland Drive. I really did. Terrific. Um, they're, they're, they're cult films, and that that's the difference. I don't know. I don't. I can't think off the top of my head of of a director known for cult films being given a big budget sci-fi film like <laughs> Dune. It's, you know it's what I very, mean? Very rare. Yes, you're correct. So, I I think with Villeneuve's name attached, and I he did a film with Amy Adams, science fiction that I absolutely Arrival. Loved. Yes, thank you. Brilliant. Yes. Brilliant film. He's got a reputation in the genre. I yes, think there is a difference. So we'll and he made see. a great, I think, a great film in uh, Blade Runner 2049 as well. I so agree. you know, I, I think I think in his hands it's capable. I'm not saying that it's gonna be a bad movie. I just wonder if the box office is gonna translate because you know, Blade Runner 2049 did not really exceed expectations at the box office. It was probably more of a downer at the box office for Warner Brothers. And that's why you didn't see a bunch of greenlit sequels because I'm probably in maybe the smaller minority, but I thought Blade Runner 2049 was better than the original in a, in a lot of ways. It had a little and, bit more human connection to it. It also had better pacing, but I know yes. what you're saying. I own, yeah. I own both movies. Um, are you a director yeah. cut Blade Runner or are you a theatrical cut Blade Runner guy? I've owned every iteration of Blade Runner. Do you have a favorite? Do you do you prefer the director's cut or the theatrical cut? Or it, I think they've made multiple cuts, but, but. it it really depends on my mood. And, yeah. and it's like I, you, I'm used to all that director's cut crap because that was just a way to generate more revenue with, with right. the super duper. Yeah, whatever. So. Anytime it's out, if it's a if it's a film I like, and there's a 
quote unquote director's cut, I buy it. I'll take a look at it once. And it really depends what I'm in the mood for when I'm not watching football. Right. It really does. Right. right. But, well, I, you know, in, in Blade Runner 2049 was a great film. You know, Villeneuve is a terrific director. I think he, he can certainly handle a project like this and make it more coherent than the 1984 version. Uh, so I'm excited. I just I just kind of wonder, do you think that there's, there's a possibility that, it, it, like you said, with the pandemic maybe kind of growing back again with the variants, that could it be possible that this movie gets pushed back to next year sometime? Anything's possible. I mean, I'm not going to get political. I'm not going to go into vaccination situation, but anything's possible. Because at this point, the way I kind of look at it, if they wanted to move back again, where would they move? There's a lot of, you know, really big movies coming out in the fall and then into the Christmas season. So you're not necessarily going to step on the Matrix 4's toes if you're Warner Brothers, because that's their movie as well coming out Christmas Day. You've got uh, the, the, the latest Spider-Man movie in December. So you really don't have a lot of options if you want to move back again, because either the pandemic's a little bit, you know, scary, or maybe you just feel like you can maximize your box office on another day. Because at this point, you know, you, you probably can't get the Thanksgiving week box office at this point. Everything's just kind of full up right now. So it's almost like you either got to run it and just let it go and do what it is. But I do agree. I don't think you're going to the same day release HBO Max. Even if the variant is spreading like wildfire, I have a feeling that Warner, I think Warner Media is trying to save face with some of these directors. Like, you know, they, they probably can't get Christopher Nolan back at this point, but maybe they can save face with some of these guys and, uh, you know, gals and, and, and maybe continue to say that we're still Warner Brothers that you knew and grew up with and have been around for a hundred years and, you know, is a linchpin in the film industry. Um, that that that's the the charge of the CEO of Discovery Plus at this point. He says he's going to yes, focus on artist relationships. Uh, you'd hope that he's starting with Nolan. I I don't know if he'll be back at Warner Brothers or not. Apparently, he's been. I hope at so. I hope he's back, but it seems like that that bridge was burned. Although. Funny enough, though, you know, Nolan's movie did get a theatrical. Basically, Nolan said he wanted the movie to be released last year, and they released it. So, I mean, they kind of catered to Nolan, even though they knew they were going to take a humongous loss because Tenet came out really right in the height of a lot of the growth of the pandemic. So, you know, they they did cater to him, but obviously, you know, Warner Warner Brothers has a lot of movies slated. You know, they have uh, the Many Saints of Newark, which is a Sopranos prequel. That movie got pushed from. September to October 1st, so it's kind of taking a little bit of the the Dune time slot. Any any thoughts on that movie being moved? And then also the Clint Eastwood movie was supposed to be an October release. Now it got moved up to September. Any thoughts on those two movies moving around? Uh, not really. I mean, The Sopranos has got a built-in audience. The, the, the yeah. I, it's th that audience is going to show up. It's what they've been clamoring for since the series went off the air. Um, when is the the bond release? Is October eighth, correct? October eighth, yes. And and the Saints of New what is it? The Saints of Newark. The many Saints of Newark will be October first, from what I see. 
they probably saw an open date and they want to take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is when you start to see the jockeying for Oscar positioning. And that's why I, I, I don't know if it was telling about Clint Eastwood's newest movie, Cry Macho, which I don't know anything really about uh, other than it's an Eastwood film and he's directing and I believe he's also starring. But uh, that movie gets pushed from uh, Oscar window October to middle of September, which can kind of sometimes be a throwaway month for some movies that maybe studios aren't too confident in their Oscar contention. What do you think about that? It, should we read it? anything into that or is it just an open slot and Clint Eastwood's a box office guy at times? Why not try it? It, it? Number one, it depends on whether it's playing at the Toronto International Film Festival first. Right. Um, and I would argue that September is outside of Toronto. The Toronto International Film Festival is a, a garbage dump for films. Now, if yeah. you compare it to Eastwood's last, what they did with Eastwood's last film, um, about uh, the bombing at the Atlanta Richard Jewell. Yeah. yeah. That film, yeah. they pushed that in the Oscar film, Oscar season, because they had high hopes for it. So yeah. obviously yeah. it's telling that, I think it's telling that they're moving this into September. I really do. Yeah. As far well, as the last couple, yeah, the last couple times out, he's, he's he hasn't been his best. Let's put it that way. But look, he's a ninety-year-old man making movies, which is pretty impressive to begin with, anyway. But with uh, Richard Jewell, Richard Jewell was a more performative, you know, act, you know, movie, good performances, not a great story. And then the Mule, I think, was the movie before that, where had a lot of high expectations, but kind of uh, didn't meet those either. Uh, yeah, I didn't see the Mule. The mule. I saw Richard Jewell. Uh, yeah, let's just say my my. We're gonna leave it at this. My my overall interest in Clint Eastwood has waned over the years. So, <laughs> I I will say this: there are there was a, a period of time where you're talking million dollar baby, uh, flags of our fathers, and I think what is Eastwood's masterpiece, Letters from Iwo Jima. Really, I mean, he hit some home runs with those films. Now, maybe uh, Flags of Our Fathers to a lesser degree, but Million Dollar Baby and Letters from Iwo Jima were just two just absolutely terrific films. I love those films. Uh, and, you know, it's not easy to make a, a great war movie. And I think Eastwood that year did two war movies with Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. And he did them both extremely well. And, you know, that's when you're thinking, man, this guy, is just he can't do any wrong. And then he started kind of... You know, Changeling wasn't very good, and you know, Jay Edgar wasn't all that great. So he kind of gone see, downhill. Jay, Jay Edgar, I didn't mind. Okay, okay. but see, for me, for me, his masterpiece will always be Unforgiven. Okay, yeah, because yeah. because he had the the the, for lack of a better term, cojones to basically disrespect the first third of his career. With that film, right. so you know that that's my my masterpiece for him. Um, okay. And actually, I didn't mind Richard Jewell that much. You know, I. But for me, American Sniper, American Sniper was good. Um, Sully Sully was good, but it was a very. 
I, I don't know how to describe it. It was a very procedural, like, let's go in, like, a la the courtroom procedural. It was a little bland, and I, I can see why it was only, like, an hour and a half long. It was it was uh, not maybe what most people expected. It was an, like an episode of CSI. <laughs> yes, it kind of was. Yeah, you're right. Although I will say Mystic River, too, was another uh, – there was another Mystic one that I kind of forgot. Yeah, I, I did love Mystic River. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's done, you know, he's he's capable. He's certainly capable. Although then he comes out with like the 1517 to Paris and then the mule. And you're just kind of like, you know, Warner Brothers is giving you all this money. Why don't you just make whatever you want to make, but make it as good as you can instead of trying to do like shoot a film in 15 days. And here it is, you know, put your jewels done. Here's the movie. Let's. I think it's an Oscar contender, Warner Brothers, and then they say, "Sure, let's get it out right away," and they do, and it's not really as well received. She's ninety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, still making, he's still making movies, and you know that I've always said this too, though. You know, you, he still has it in him. I think even at ninety, or no matter how old he gets before he does quit or whatever. I still think he has it in him to make great movies. I mean, American Sniper was a good return to form after some duds. Sully was a solid film, even though it wasn't great. But, I mean, he's not far removed from making some just absolute masterworks. He's he's not Tarantino. He's not going to quit. You no, he's Tarantino? not. He, he's not. He's, he's, he's that old school, at this point, great-grandfather who's going to work until his his last breath, right? He he right. really is. That's his oh, generation. Yeah. So, well, I mean, he's since 2014. I mean, he seems to have. I mean, he's made seven movies since 2014. He took one year off. That was 2017, in between uh, Sully and the 1517 of Paris. So he's made. I mean, he's been a consistent worker for forever, obviously. But really, in this last decade, he's really been a consistent worker behind the camera. And, you know, you got to give him credit. You know, he's he's I, I still think he's of the right mind to be able to make a great film. It just maybe it's the projects. Maybe it's the screenplay that's letting him down. I don't really know what exactly just isn't working right now for him. But he's definitely far removed, I think, from what I think are his best works versus, you know, what his recent works are looking like. But, you know, this time around, you know, maybe uh, maybe he'll get some uh, extra credit because he's going up against the Clifford the Big Red Dog movie uh, at the box office that week. <laughs> so I wonder if Warner Brothers was looking at the, the, the schedule and said, yep, we're going to put it right there against Clifford the Big Red Dog. So um, good luck to, to Cry Macho. Um, hopefully hopefully uh, it, it's better than some of his recent works, but uh, – Obviously, a lot of shuffling of the decks, and, and things could still shuffle, uh, you know, before October comes around. But uh, definitely appreciate it. Any final thoughts, George, on uh, anything in the film industry or anything that we talked about today? No, I mean, I, I do think next week is going to be telling um, for the rest of the year. Um, Black Widow is being released. Yes. So we're going to know a lot about how people feel about returning to the theater next Wednesday, I think. So yeah. even though that's yeah. going to be on Disney Plus for 30 bucks, Right. right. I, I, the way I look at it in the box office is the box office will have recovered for me when there is more than one movie that dominates the box office. Like if we get a $70 million opening for F9 and then everything else is below $10 million, 
I don't think the box office has recovered. If you get like a 40 million opening weekend for, or 50 million opening weekend for Black Widow and then another 20 or 30 or 40 for F9, I think you're starting to see it recover a little bit because more people are, are heading out to the movies. I, I don't think there's enough back in the pipeline yet right. for, for that to happen. Not enough with a big name. Of course, people line up for Purge films when you got the first Purge. <laughs> that, is true. that is true. So Well, you never know. Maybe, maybe we'll have a bigger box office this weekend with a carryover from F9 to Black Widow to the Purge. Who knows? Maybe this next uh, couple of weeks we'll, uh, to, we'll really reinvigorate the box office and we'll start seeing... Uh, a return to normal for all the uh, box office releases. So, uh, well, George, we definitely appreciate it. Like I said, everybody, you guys can read all of his content on AkronBeaconJournal.com, or of course you could get the paper if you're up in that area. Uh, you can follow George on Twitter at by George Thomas. So I definitely recommend you follow him. You read all of his stories. It's uh, definitely worth your subscription uh, to read George. Uh, definitely appreciate you joining us this week, George. Uh, we'll see Always you next time at the movies. All right. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high-impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope to learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.